0: Well, the crucifixion of Christ, I'm filling in for the pastor today, I could have taken any text in this whole Bible. He didn't say you have to continue in, Rome, in, uh, in Hebrews, and I choose the crucifixion. Why would I do that? Uh, my son asked me yesterday, what are you preaching on? And I said, the crucifixion of Jesus. He said, mm, heavy. <laughs> I thought, yeah, it is heavy. Uh... Heavy can be good. Um, It is a heavy text. It's an important text. All of history has been anticipating this moment. The whole Bible points to it. We used to teach our kids uh, in Sunday school a book called 66 and 1. 66 books. One theme. And that was Jesus. And so, before we dive into this crucifixion, I thought it would be Important to, to see a history. It's going to be a very brief history, by the way, but a history of the world. Because this is what, this is the, the climax of, of everything that we've been waiting for. And so here, here's the history as we know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man. And he told man to obey him. And man heard that he didn't have to obey God, and he could actually be like God. And so, man disobeyed. And God could not be in the presence of sin, and so he had to remove man from his presence. But he told man that one day he would send someone to pay the penalty for that sin. And so, man populates the earth. More and more people are born, and more and more people sin against God, even to a point where God thinks, I'm sorry I made this man. And he decides to judge the earth, and he sends a flood to kill and wipe out all of his creation except for one man and his family he decides to save because he must fulfill his promise to the first man that I will send a man to save you. And so that man and his family survive the flood, and they begin to repopulate the earth More and more people are born, and these people don't know God. And so God chooses a man and says, I'm going to choose you to build a nation to represent the entire world. Your nation will represent me to the entire world. And he told that man, one of your descendants will be that promised one that will save you all from your sins. And he gave this nation rules, this man's uh, they're, they're, his children populate, and they become bigger and bigger and bigger into the millions and millions, and, and He gives them rules. He calls those law. and His law is supposed to guide this nation, and they're not very good at obeying this law, and they sin against God, and the law shows them that they, that they still need a Savior. And so God sends to this nation prophets that tell this nation what they should do and how they should behave, And the prophets even tell of the one who is going to come and save them. And one of those prophets was named Daniel. And Daniel, having a vision, he has this vision of these nations that are warring against one another and destroying one another. And then he says, a great leader came, and he was like the Son of Man. And I want you to remember that phrase, Son of Man, because we'll see it again in a moment. And it says that this leader went before God, and God gave him power and glory, in a kingdom that would never end. And so this nation who received these prophecies, they, they were conquered by other nations. And I think they start to forget what this promise was about. And after 400 long years of silence, of not hearing from their God, an announcement is made by an angel that the one that would save the world from their sins had come. And who had come was Jesus. So Jesus grew up and became a man, and that's where our story starts today. So there you go, the history of the world so far. Now, the book of Mark is a very fast-paced book. It has one central theme, which is who is this Jesus. So, Mark, uh, the book flows from who is Jesus to what he must do. And then we're going to see the beauty of what this terrible crucifixion means for us. And so, the answer to who Jesus is is so clear in this book. I'm going to give you an overview of the book itself. It goes like this. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. And then it continues in chapter 1. It says that Jesus had authority over Scripture, that, he, uh, that even the demons recognized Jesus as the Holy One of God. It says that he showed authority over the demons, and he shows authority over illness and disease. And this is just in chapter 1. So, so far, just in the first chapter, we see characteristics of Ascribed to this man that only God possesses. So we, we could stop in chapter 1 and understand who Jesus is, but it continues. Chapter 2, we see that he has the authority to forgive sins. We see that he is even Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 3, the demons again declare that he is the Son of God. And in chapter 3, we see that he has authority even over Satan. We see that he has authority to declare who is in the kingdom of God. And in chapter 4, authority over nature itself, the created world, he can decide how it acts. In chapter 5, he's called the Son of the Most High God. We see the authority over demons again, and even authority over death. Our kids two weeks ago in their Sunday school class learned that God created them. The question was, who created you? And their answer was, God created me. And we taught them that God was the author of life. And we see here that Jesus has that same authority. So time and time again throughout this book we see these characteristics that only God possesses, Jesus has. And he continues to to act in such a way that only God can act. And then there's a slight shift in the book, where it goes from explaining who he is to what he's going to have to do. In verse, uh, I'm sorry, a chapter eight, he tells his disciples plainly that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Again, in chapter nine, after the transfiguration, he tells Peter, James, and John that he was going to rise from the dead. And in verse 31 of chapter 9, he tells them he will be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. And he will be killed, and after three days, he will rise again. And then he continues on. Same theme here. Chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. Yet again, he tells them, he will be killed, and three days later, rise again. And in 45, he explains why. It says, that he explains why he must die, and it is to give his life as a ransom for many. So he has clearly explained to his disciples that he must die, and that he will rise again, but he must die in order to ransom a people. And so, this book can't be any more clear about who Jesus is. And it can't be any more clear about what he has to do. He must die for the sins of man. So, you remember how the rest of the story goes Jesus is rejected, and betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. He's captured, and the rest of his disciples flee from him. He's led away to stand trial, charges of heresy and blasphemy. Now, this is interesting, and it's fitting uh, because of the context uh, or the theme of this book. When he's being interrogated by the high priest, Jesus answers only the questions about who he is. That's what the theme of this book is. Who is this Jesus? And Jesus only answers the questions about who he is. The high priest asks him, Are you the Son of Christ? The Son of the Blessed One? You've got to know this high priest is thinking, You better not say yes. And Jesus says, I am. Now, I don't know, but I wonder if this is a a reference back to, to Moses. Moses says, who shall I say sent me to the people? And God said, say that I am sent you. And Jesus continues with his answer, and he says, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do You remember what the prophet Daniel had said about who he saw coming? One like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So Jesus refers to himself by this phrase, Son of Man, 15 times in this book. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am God. And I am the one true king. I am the one your prophet Daniel was talking about. But first, I must complete what I was sent here to do. In chapter 15, we see these two themes of who he is and and what he must do come to a crossroads. So claiming to be Christ and the Son of God was more than the high priests and the entire Sanhedrin could handle. And so the high priest he tears his his robes and he cries blasphemy. He hates it. And Jesus immediately gets beaten by those in his presence. And he's rejected by the high priest, and the chief priest, and the scribes, and the elders of the people, of his people. They reject him. And all the while, while this is taking place, while Jesus is being beaten and suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, his closest disciples have left him. Peter is in the process right now of rejecting him. He does it three times that evening. So in the morning, Jesus is brought to Pilate to stand trial before him. These religious authorities did not have the power to uh, execute the death sentence here, and so they take them to Pilate, who does. And again, Jesus only answers the questions about who he is. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate, knowing Herod's the king of the Jews, right? This, this Jesus, he's just another, another crazy guy. And so Jesus says, it is as you say. And so Pilate, he cannot find fault with Jesus. So he wants to release him, but he knows the people won't have that. And so uh, every, every year at this festival, this Passover festival, he would release one person For them. And so he asked them, who do you want me to release? In the meanwhile, the, the religious leaders are in the crowd stirring them up, and they say, hey, let's ask for Barabbas, the murderer who was part of the insurrection. Let's ask for him to be released instead of Jesus. And so the whole crowd cries to Pilate, release Barabbas. And so he does, and he says, well, what should I do with Jesus? And they call for him to be crucified. So now, rejected by his people, in Pilate, Jesus is sent away to be scourged and crucified. Which brings us to our text today, Mark 15:21. I know that was a long intro, but I think we needed the context. This first section We'll call Forsaken of Man, and it's 1521 through 32, if you're taking notes. So now having been rejected by his disciples, forsaken by his disciples, uh, rejected by the nation of Israel and its leaders and Rome, he has no one with him. No one to bear his burden with him. He's been scourged and beaten almost to the point of death. 39 lashes, 40 would have killed him. And he's too weak to carry his cross beam, his crossbeam, to the place where he'll be crucified. And so he's stumbling along, and he's not making it, and the, the, the officers are frustrated with the process. And so they grab a stranger to help. Verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country... Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, if there's any part of Scripture that Peter would cringe at and not want to hear again over and over, I think it would be verse 21. You might think, well, it was probably when he was denying Christ. I think this is worse. Who should have been by Jesus' side to pick up that cross. Mark 8, 31 and 35 gives us some insight into that. <clears throat> it says in 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find it. Was it not Simon Peter who should have been with him? Was it not he who said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not? Can you imagine what that must have been like for Christ? He's, He's at the point of death, He's he's barely able to walk. He is suffering. What are are you like when you are suffering, when we are sick, when things aren't going well, when we throw out our backs? Right? Our our countenance is down. What do we want? Other than just the circumstance to be alleviated, what do we we want? We want someone with us. We want someone who is familiar, who loves us, just to be near us and say, I'm with you. I know you're hurting, and I'm sorry, and I'm I'm here with you. And so they pull this guy out of the crowd. They say, you, what is your name? This is not what Scripture says. I'm I'm making it up here. He says, Simon. They say, here, Simon will carry his cross. And Jesus hears, Simon will carry Is this? Did Simon come back? And he looks, and he sees a stranger. And the, the sting of rejection all over again. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for Simon. For Peter, if he was, don't know that he was, looking on, seeing some other man take on the responsibility that should have been his. So instead of Simon, of Simon Peter, it was Simon of Cyrene by his side. It was the wrong Simon. So in, v- in verse 22, it says they brought him to the place Golgotha, which translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And so, wine mixed with myrrh acted as a sedative. And so, out of mercy for these people being sacrificed, as they would pass along, people would give them this drink and it would numb their senses. They needed it. Crucifixion was the worst possible way to die, the most painful way to die. The best these people could do for them was to give them a sedative to take away some of the sting. I mean, think about it. When when you have an open blister on your hand, you, you touch the skin, it hurts. His whole back is opened; It's up against a rough wooden cross. It's excruciating. And so they try to numb his senses. But Jesus, knowing that he has to take the full wrath, Of God in order to redeem this people, he has no part of it. Verse 24 And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when he was crucified. Verse 26 The inscription. The charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. can he not save himself? Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were insulting him also. How can this be? how could it get to this point? I can almost understand the rejection by the religious leaders. Life uh, for them under Rome was not so bad. They, they enjoyed all the benefits of being at the top of society, the dinner parties, the status with not actually having to rule because Rome was taking care of that. But you don't re- expect this response from the people. It was the people who wanted a savior. Just five days before, they were praising his name. They were praising and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Save now. They thought the Messiah had come. His popularity had spread far and wide. People have heard of the miracles. People have witnessed the miracles. Some of them had been cleansed themselves. They heard the way he spoke. And they made the connection to Psalm 118. When they shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was their long-awaited Messiah. So what, would hap- what went wrong? Why such rejection? So maybe rejection, but why the scorn? The truth is, they weren't getting their way. They were throwing the biggest temper tantrum that Rome had ever seen. They wanted a Savior to save them From the rule of Rome. They didn't think they needed a Savior to restore them to God. They thought that their religion would do that. They wanted to become their own sovereign nation, and Jesus was not fulfilling that for them. He was just going in and out of the city, teaching in the temple about the kingdom of God, trying to prepare them And Judas is the first to jump ship. He's thinking, this guy is not here to defeat Rome. I'm not going to have a high place. He's bent on dying. He's going to do that anyway. I might as well turn him in and make a buck at the process. Jesus was not leading the charge against Rome. So the people start to think, maybe this isn't the Messiah. I just heard that he was arrested last night for charges of blasphemy. Surely the Messiah would not allow himself to be arrested. Surely he wouldn't blaspheme. Surely this Jesus is not the Messiah. And so they shouted, crucify! Murder him! He didn't give us what we wanted, so let's give him the worst possible death that exists. Wow. Wow. All of this because they thought they were robbed of their sovereignty. And he's crucified, and they wag their heads at him, and they insult him, and they mock him. What does James say about this type of behavior? Chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. They wanted something God had not granted them, and so they murdered the one who they thought should have given it to them. This is crazy. Who acts this way? This sounds a lot like Cain, who murders his brother Abel because of his jealousy. Really, it sounds a lot like us. We act this way. You think, well, you got to understand, they were under Rome for a long time. They really thought this guy was going to save them, so I can, I can understand how they were so angry. Sure, they got angry. But mankind turns their anger quickly, right? When you reject reject Christ's rule in your life, sin begins to rule your heart and your mind. And you don't think straight. This is the consequence of sin. You cannot think straight. You, You behave irrationally. I love the way one of our elders, Blaine, states this principle. It really brings clarity. He says this, sin makes you stupid. It's true. Who of us, after repenting of sin, thinks, yeah, that was wrong. But I really do think I was acting rightly with all the other circumstances around that sin. No, we don't think that. And if we do think that, I might suggest that you actually haven't repented yet. When we repent of our sin, we hate it. We think, why did I act that way? Why was I so stupid? And so let's stop for a minute, church. Do you have anything in your life that you think you need is there something that would be right for you to have? Is there a peace that you desire but someone, some person or some circumstance is keeping that from you? Is your life not going like it planned, like you planned it to be? My kids don't act like they should. My wife or my husband is it's not the person i thought they were going to be when i married them my job is meaningless my boss doesn't listen to any of my good ideas i wanted to make it through that intersection but the guy in front of me stopped at the yellow light we become angry don't get me started on my neighbors my in-laws my pastor Everyone around us is messing stuff up for us. And we don't get our way, and so we get angry. But of course, we don't get angry at God, because that would not be righteous. Right? Instead, we try to pin it on someone else. We think things like, the person I trusted let me down. They've gotten in the way of me doing what I want by By the way, what I want is a good thing. Otherwise, I wouldn't want it. So their motives must be selfish. It must be impure. Their motives might even be evil. Of course, we don't follow through with murder. The law of the land restrains us from that. It would not be beneficial for us to do that. and It's not accepted in society. But instead, we murder in our hearts. This is what Jesus tells us. Shouldn't we think this way instead? The thing I want, the way of life that I want, that sovereign autonomy that I desire just might not be what the Lord wants for me. The sovereign nation Is not what the Lord had in mind for the nation of Israel. It was something much better. It was a nation freed from Rome. I'm sorry, it was not a nation freed from Rome, but it was a nation freed from sin and the consequences of that sin. But we see that they rejected his good plan. And so, church family, let us not do the same Let us not reject God's good plan for us as we seek something more than Him. Let us not place any desire above worshiping God. Let us lay our plans, our desires, all before Him and trust that He will give us what we need. Go back to verse 29. Look down at it with me. Those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. He was their God, they knew the scriptures. They should have recognized him. And if anyone should have seen it, it was the Pharisees, the chief priests. They should have known better than anyone. But what did they do? Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. So this ability to see, and this ability to believe and understand has nothing to do with intellectual capabilities. It barely has anything to do with knowledge, though you need to know who he is. Because if that were true, we would see the brightest, the most educated, those with the highest IQs as Christ followers, wouldn't we? Ask astrophysicist uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson what he thinks of God. If you could, if he was still alive, ask Stephen Hawking what he thought of God. Two of the most brilliant minds. They would give you some intellectual nonsense about how he doesn't exist. I don't mean this joking anyway, but Stephen Hawking's been dead for two years. I can tell you now he knows exactly who God is, who Christ is. It's a tragedy. So why didn't the Israelites see him for who he was, and why don't people today see him for who he is? It's the same reason Paul said that he couldn't see, and all of us couldn't see. You'll recognize this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people don't respond to the spiritual truths of God with open arms. So your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. They didn't see who he was because they were consumed with something else. They were too too focused on something else, and that was self. They worshipped self. They worshipped what they wanted to, and they wanted what they worshipped. And that very thing still blinds us today. For some... They are still blind to who He is, and they reject Him as Lord and Savior. And to the rest of us, we have accepted Him as Lord and Savior, but we still reject Him as we allow the selfish desires of our heart to creep up and sit on the thrones of our hearts again. Matthew 6 describes this estate that we're describing here perfectly. In 21, it says, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if then your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either they will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Essentially what it's saying here is you cannot desire the things of the world and God at the same time. Or perhaps some did see it. Like it says in Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened." And I tend to believe that the religious leaders of the time did see him for who he was. They just didn't want him. So their heart's desire was to be a sovereign nation, this people of Israel, here on earth, for the peace and for the comfort of life. The chief priests wanted nothing to do with that. So to worship something other than God is to reject Him. It is to distance yourself from God. And the penalty for rejecting Him is the distance you are asking for. When you reject God, you say, No, God, I don't want any part of what you're saying. Give me space. Give me distance. And God says, Yes. Yes. That is what you will have for eternity and forever separated from God. We would call that eternal death and suffering. So this was man's forsaking of Christ. And now our second point, we'll look at God's forsaking of Christ, starting in verse 33. We see that man's response out of their darkened heart was the rejection of Jesus. And all throughout Scripture, darkness is used as a symbol of sin and the effects of sin. In Proverbs 2, 12, it says, "...to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of righteousness, to walk in the ways of darkness." So sin and darkness are one of the same here. In verse 33, God responds with darkness. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sins of the world are laid on Jesus in that moment. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So God, being holy and just, just like in the beginning with Adam, could not be in fellowship with sin. And Jesus was removed from his presence, and he was removed from the light. And for the first time from eternity past, the Son of God was no longer in fellowship with the Father. He had been rejected, abandoned, forsaken by all. His heart melts like wax, like it says in Psalm 22, and he suffered alone. So Jesus said in chapter 10, he became a ransom for many. And what is a ransom? It's an exchange. Captors holding on to something and in order to get it back. Something has to be paid, and either it's money or it's something else. And Jesus was our ransom. Sin was our captor. And it was going to kill us eternally. And Jesus gave his life to free us from our captor. He was our ransom. And so when he cries out before he breathed his last, he's identifying himself with Psalm 22. The people should have known this psalm. It starts out this way. This, uh, This psalm portrays the scene of the cross more clearly than any other. Maybe Isaiah 53 rivals it. But it starts this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you are are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melts within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But the bystanders did not recognize that psalm. They mistook what he said. They thought that he was crying out to Elijah to save him. Now, this, understand, this misunderstanding makes sense, because the last time he had something to drink was the night before at the Lord's Supper. And since then, his body has been beaten and scourged, and now there's critical blood loss and dehydration, and the body is shutting down, and it is trying to preserve its fluids, and the salivary glands are shut down, and his mouth is dry, and it cleaves to his jaw, like he said. cleaves to the roof of his mouth. Have you ever tried to talk the dry mouth it's hard to do it's hard to understand someone who has a dry mouth it's next to impossible and so he struggles out these words eloi eloi which sound very similar to elijah elias which means my god is yahweh the jews were awaiting the return of elijah from the prophecy of malachi it says behold i'm sending to you elijah the prophet before the coming of the great day of The great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so Jesus' body is failing, and they don't want him to pass out yet. They want to see if Elijah will really come to save him. They're still looking for signs. And so they give him sour wine to drink to awaken him. And what this is, is is really just when you take wine and you let it continue to ferment, it becomes vinegar. It has the same effect that a smelling salt would have. It, it increases the heart rate. Uh, there's vasodilation in the blood vessels. is increased oxygen intake, and alertness is restored. And as his alertness is restored, he, he presses on the nails that are in his feet... Because you can't breathe when your arms are spread out like this. It, it opens the lungs, and, and it's not that you can't take inner breath. It's just that it's hard to, to push out your breath because it stretches the lungs. And he cries his last breath, <clears throat> his, a loud cry, and he breathes his last. And it's finished. The son, The sins of man are paid in full. And God accepts this sacrifice. We know God has accepted this sacrifice because what happens next is the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. It's a thick piece of fabric. This was the fabric to separate God from man, the Holy of Holies from man. And God tears it. It is no more. There is no more separation. Now man can come to God Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of a perfect sacrifice, Jesus. And so like it says in Hebrews 10, this this, this system of imperfect imperfect sacrifices is done away with. Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world... He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And that's what happened. The sacrifice that had to be paid for the sins of mankind had to be a sufficient substitute. It had to be fully man. The blood of an animal could not pay for the sins of a man. That would not do. It had to be like kind. And it had to be perfect. Not just any man could fulfill that role. No other sacrifice than a perfect sacrifice would be sufficient. If it had blemish, or if there had been any wrong done... Then it deserved to die, and its death would be paying for its own sins. It had to be fully God, because only God is perfect. Only God is pure. Only God is without sin. And so Jesus, the Son of God, equal to God, sacrifices his body... To redeem a people that were ruined by sin. And this passage ends in verse 39 in the same way the book began in chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read it for you again. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the book starts. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 39 When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So I would like to know what it was about the way that Jesus breathed his last that caused the centurion to say, truly, this was the Son of God. Do you notice who is believing here? It's a Gentile. It is the last person you would expect to believe. It is a Roman army commander, and he gets it. And this is the first time in the whole narrative that a man says who Jesus is as the Son of God. God said it. The demons proclaimed it. You say, what about Peter? Peter was close. He said, you are the Christ. He didn't say, you are the Son of God. And so, the Son of God suffered the wrath and rejection of all mankind and the rejection, I'm sorry, the wrath of God and the rejection of all mankind to redeem you. To be a worshiper of God. But the story doesn't end there. It's not part of our text, but we know that He rises again. He prophesied it. He proclaimed it, and it happened. And so we do not worship a dead Savior. We worship a living God. A dead Savior can do nothing to save us because He is dead. Jesus is risen. And so, church, do not forsake this salvation. Do not forsake this sanctification, this life that he has us in now, these trials that we go through which lead to Christlikeness, Do not forsake it. Do not wish it away. Trust that God's plan is good, that he is sovereign over these things. And for the one who does not yet believe, do not forsake this salvation. If you have identified yourself as someone who has not bowed the knee to Christ and given your life to him and said, I will forsake all for you. If that is not you, please do not walk through those doors without talking to one of us here. Eternity is on the line. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that while we were still your enemy, while we still worshipped ourselves and wanted nothing to do with you, you sent Jesus to die for us. We deserve death. We deserve an eternal separation from you, eternal judgment and punishment and agony. That is what we deserve for turning from you. But you caused your Son to take on that wrath, to absorb that wrath for us. And we thank you for that. And we praise you that he is now at your right hand making intercession for us and that he will return for us. And one day we will be together in your presence, glorifying you, worshiping you as you created us to do. So, Father, help us to live lives worthy of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.